and welcome to Pop Screen. Listeners, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that part of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bad, and the befuddling of films either starring about or by pop stars. Know the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a short filmmaker and visual artist. I write for the Geek Show and Horrified.com, the British horror website. I've been joined this week by... Ewan Gledo. Hello. Hello. Where can people find you, Ewan? Uh, they can find me on Cult Following, Clapper, Geek Show, um, Newcastle World. Uh, that'll do. <laughs> I just, I hate listening to these things. It's like, <laughs> there's, there's too many because they're just freelance now. You've it's got like, to get better at whoring yourself out. That's I the one do, thing I've learned about a career in journalism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's just such a pain in the ass. Yeah. Uh, but still, for the first time, Pop Screen is devoting a month to the work of one recording artist. And to do that, it would have to be an artist with a remarkable variety of musical and filmmaking uh, genres and styles in their back pocket. So it could only really be David Bowie. And we're starting our month-long look at Bowie to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars with, I think, everyone's favourite era of his work, the mid-noughties, when he just announced his retirement from touring and was in the middle of a decade-long hiatus between new albums. But he did manage to put out one, uh, at least one major film that is widely remembered to this day with his performance as Nikola Tesla in Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. So uh, I suppose the first thing we have to say, even though this is maybe less of a hot topic than it was about 10 years ago, but Christopher Nolan, yay or nay? Nay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I... I, I... I'm I'm at a real impasse about Christopher Nolan. I think it's it's because I've started developing my brain. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I I remember seeing Tenet and I thought, well, that was just a load of piss, really. That was I've watched it now, that'll do. But mm. I, I, you know, Memento and The Dark Knight are still brilliant films, and there's obvious scope for them. I, I don't really give much credence to the oh one artist, how deep his moving films are. Nah. Mm. But he's good, you know. He knows how to work camera, which is more than I can do. So I'm, I'm in no <laughs> position to judge. Um, what do you think? Are you a big Nolan fan? Yeah, and for, from a sort of odd viewpoint, because I I did find that oh man, mind bender Christopher Nolan thing a bit annoying when it was going on. Uh, it seized off a bit. I mean, Dunkirk was only slightly fucking with the time frame so I think that <laughs> killed it a bit but I think one of the things that kept me a bit at arm's length and one of the reasons why it's interesting to go back to something as early on as The Prestige is that for a long time I felt his films were very cold yeah yeah I think he's warmed up in recent times I think part of it is just a visual thing that he works with Hoyt von Hoytemer a lot of cinematographer and Hoyt von Hoytem is really, like when you look at something like Interstellar or Dunkirk, he's really allowed more warm kind of earth tones into his work. But also I think with the Batman films, he seemed to start to understand that it's all right to have characters who are kind of big and archetypal and colour outside the lines a bit. The early films are very much 
he is a professional man in a suit. Admire him because he's professional and he's in a suit. You know, and it's... And after he'd done Inception, which is a whole film of professional men in a suit, <laughs> maybe he realised he had no further, like, distance to run with that concept. It's Yeah, I remember watching Insomnia, which is one of his earlier films, isn't it? Mm, I remember yeah. thinking that was very... For, for all the talent in that, like Al Pacino and Robin Williams, there's not... It's not amazing. It's not mm. like, wow, look at this explosive cast. Look at the great thrills. It's just all right. It's a, it's a bit of a clunky detective mystery. But yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. And I think even when you look at something like Tenet, which I think I liked more than you. I don't think it's like a masterpiece. <laughs> I, thought, but, um, I remember when it came out of Sky Stores about six months after I'd seen it. And my dad was like, oh, is this any good? I was like, yeah. No, not really. (laughs) Thing with tennis is, even though that is a bit closer to the professional man in a suit stuff of his early years, that still has Robert Pattinson going Mm. absolutely feral with that supporting role. And I don't think he would have allowed that into one of his films early on. I think he he liked to keep a very tight leash on the tone in his early days. It was the great renaissance he needed having Robert Pattinson in that film. Absolutely, yeah. Fantastic. But I, I think he wouldn't have done that early on. And I think maybe it was, you know, working with Heath Ledger and realising what an impact that role made that made him think, oh, actually, that there's there's more to the world than professional men in suits, really, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Sometimes there's magicians in yeah. professional suits, naturally. <laughs> They are very good suits. I can't they complain are. about the prestige on a tailoring standpoint. It's better than The Illusionist with Edward Norton. I was going to ask if you remembered The Illusionist, because the big thing, <laughs> yeah. wasn't it, with like two Victorian magician <laughs> movies coming out at the same time? The only reason I remember it is that when I started collecting that mess behind me, The Illusionist <laughs> was the first DVD I ever bought, and I never watched it. I got rid of right. it. I don't know where it is, actually. Might be in a charity shop somewhere. It's a very mm. charity shop film, I think. It is, yeah. 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 But the, th- the thing <laughs> with The Illusionist, actually, I will say, a fair bit of it isn't bad, but the ending is just built on such an outrageous fucking cheat that it maddens me. I think that's the issue with magicians in films, and, and to be fair, my only yes. other basis of reference is The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. But... <laughs> the only the only thing you can do with magicians in films is either make them hate each other or do camera trickery that makes magic look cool. Yes, and, and that is the problem, isn't it? Seeing yeah. a magician live has the obvious appeal that they're doing this for real. You know, you, you are trying to work out how the sleight of hand operates, but yeah. when you're in a film, the obvious answer as to how it operates is, well, they've cut away and now they're cutting back. Yeah, exactly that. And it's 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 nice that, you know, I mean, especially in The Prestige, it's easy to lose yourself in The Prestige because of the performances, essentially. Yeah. But it's hard to know where the cuts are and where they aren't when they're performing the actual magic. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not Penn and Teller, but it's not exactly, like, the worst thing in the world, you know? Mm, I would agree. Like, yeah. It's, it's somewhere between Dynamo and David Blaine. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> it's not a bad place to be. Weirdly, that's how I rate all films on a Dynamo <laughs> to David Blaine scale. I remember getting out of Tenet and thinking, that's so David Blaine. Yeah. However, Insomnia, <laughs> closer to 
Of course it did. The other one that I've already forgotten. The Dynamo, that was it. <laughs> Magician Impossible, that was it. Get that DVD. Uh, what a guy. Yeah, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, and I think that's probably a dwindling band of people at this point, uh, the Prestige is about the rivalry between two magicians in the Victorian era in the golden age of stage magic. Uh, one of them has a wife who dies because it's a Christopher Nolan film. Uh, this time she dies because a trick goes wrong. And Angie Air, the magician whose wife it is, who uh, is killed, blames the other one, Borden, for that death. And you might be thinking, if you haven't seen this film before, where the hell does Nikola Tesla fit into that? And, well, it's it's quite a yarn, isn't it? It's such a fascinating series of events that led to the casting of David Bowie and the subsequent inclusion of Tesla in The Prestige. Yeah. And I'm glad it happened, because the only alternative to a Nikola Tesla biopic is the Ethan Hawke one that came out a few years ago. Which I still which haven't is... seen. It's so strange. It's yeah. beyond the pale. It's fascinatingly weird. Um, For a while, it was one of those topics that a lot of people tried but could never get off the ground. I know David Lynch spent a lot of hmm. time researching a Nikola Tesla biopic that just never happened for whatever reason. How hard is it to just make a biopic? Just do it. Just go for it. Get it done. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a little hard for that, but... It's one of those things where there is kind of a tipping point with Tesla stuff that for a while he felt like a secret handshake. He felt like the guy who you only know if you're seriously into the history of science and engineering. Yeah. And then... I think that there was such a tipping point again about 10 years ago where so many people had said, I can't believe Nikola Tesla isn't more famous that actually Nikola Tesla suddenly became very famous. It's Yeah, it was the sort of a, an immediate explosion of why isn't anybody talking about Nikola Tesla? And then yeah. everybody started talking about Nikola Tesla, not because they know of him, but they were like, who is this guy? And it yeah. just spiralled from there. And I still think the same amount of people that were talking about him then thinking, who is him? Who is him? Who is he? Have also <laughs> gone on to say, yeah, okay, I know the name, but who is he? And that's, yeah. <laughs> that's quite a beautiful thing, actually. Yeah, I think if you knew about Nikola Tesla purely from pop culture, you would have a very odd picture of who he was, right? Yeah, because for me, it's either David Bowie or Ethan Hawke getting into ice cream fights with Kyle MacLachlan. So it's it, it's had, a very I've had skewed dreams view. about that, by the way. <laughs> dreams about that. <laughs> <laughs> he did sum up with light, didn't he? That's all I know. <laughs> My A-level in history coming in hand once again. Yeah, what he, pop culture did... has taught me is that Nikola Tesla was David Bowie before David Bowie was David Bowie. He invented electricity, but Thomas Edison beat him up and nicked all the electricity. Uh, and then he was attacked by alien scorpions, but Doctor Who saved him. That's why I know yes, about Nikola Yes, Tesla. I remember that happening, yes. I'm surprised they gloss over that in The Prestige, though. I thought that was a little odd. It, it's a more grounded <laughs> film, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. And having said that, it's a more grounded film, yet it, it deals with magic. Like It uh. deals with magic, and it's also... I mean, this is another thing that I've sort of had a great internet geek following before it just became everywhere. It is also kind of a steampunk film, isn't it? 
It is, yeah. And it's any, I mean, especially with the Tesla stuff. And it's, mm. I really like it. I really like that aesthetic quite a bit. And I've no real fondness for steampunk stuff. Because the yeah. only the steampunk film that's springing to mind is Wild Wild West with <laughs> Will Smith. Yes. Um, and Mortal Engines as well. It's not, it's, steampunk's a very interesting sort of, I mean, for me, it's because every, every now and then people that like writing fiction as sort of a hobby, they'll immediately think, well, steampunk, let's just yeah. do that. And you can work with the cogs and the bronze and all that stuff. Mm. It's very hard to actually portray it as something that's got depth to it. And I think that's quite strong for the prestige. It manages that quite nicely. Yeah, it's it's one of those genres which coalesced in an odd way because it's I, I don't know, you, you can obviously trace it back to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, and that's part yeah. of what it was going for. But obviously, Wells and Jules Verne weren't writing steampunk; they were writing a sort of now punk. You know, that was just <laughs> yeah. what science fiction looked like back then. So you're taking a genre which is about imagining the future and you're turning it into a way of reimagining the past. And I think for mainstream audiences for a long time, that was just a, a bit of a, a bit too much of a corkscrew to get their heads Yeah, around. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, well, that's the thing. It's sort of, I mean, the writers of today are probably writing something that 20 to 100 years down the line is going to be adapted into this. Oh, what a, what a revelation. It's like, that's not really, though, is it? But I think... I, I do think especially that because of the steampunk aesthetic, it also lends itself to the Victorian aesthetic. Yeah. And I think it's it's the lack of pursuit that Nolan has for the steampunk genre that actually makes it feel quite steampunk. He's just adapting yeah. a Victorian uh, period piece, essentially. Yeah. But as it turns out, it's it's the actual application of, well, this is what technology probably looked like back then. This is what I think it would have looked like. This is what I want to do with it. And in turn, it actually does turn into a decent rendition of steampunk. Yeah. And Tesla is a gift for steampunk writers because we know that parts of his equipment and his, his archives were destroyed. So there is a natural place you can slip it in. Like steampunk always faces this problem of are you going to make it into a full parallel universe? Like if you're yeah. going to make a story where people fly to the moon in 1871 does that turn into a parallel universe where the 21st century is different or do you just say oh everyone forgot about it for a reason <laughs> everyone and, forgot about it yeah. it just wasn't remarkable when you couldn't see it on the telly <laughs> yeah that was it they were all listening to it on like wax cylinders and they couldn't really get the full import of it so tesla at least allows you a window to say ah well this happened but people don't know about it for this reason yeah. i like to think that the archives that were destroyed for Tesla's work were just the most mundane inventions. Like he invented the egg timer, <laughs> nothing mad, nothing incredible. It was inventing little kitchen appliances that he could use this new electric thing with. Perfect. I wonder if it was all just fan fiction. If he was just writing like uh, Thomas Edison Mon fan fiction, Thomas Edison fan fiction, Count of Monte Cristo fan fiction. If he was <laughs> trying to like expand the Ivanhoe literary universe. <laughs> And uh, we, we've just got it into our heads that it must be something of massive import. It, it probably, it, it was probably just notes, you know. Yeah, but who cares about notes? Yes, <laughs> we don't need historical documents. Just get rid of them. We've sorted that historical mystery. Then we know what Tesla's <laughs> missing have. notes are now. Um, Egg timers and fan fiction. <laughs> 
I like to think, though, that that would probably be canon for the David Bowie performance, that that is what he'd be writing about in his Definitely. spare time. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I know we'll speak about David Bowie a lot, but Andy Serkis as mm. his assistant, very interesting choice. Um, yeah. That was quite good. Not least because it's his actual face, which you too rarely get a chance to see. Yeah. Like, even in that new Batman film, that wasn't really his actual face. It was kind of shrouded in beards and glasses and explosions. Well, the thing is, Andy Serkis was actually playing Paul Dano in that film, and Paul <laughs> Dano was motion-captured to look like Andy Serkis. That's, I knew he couldn't keep himself away from the green suits, but <laughs> he's got a real knack for that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's not it's, even an ability he's got. He's just got a fetish for the like skin type. He's done at least ten films where his role is to be on his hands and knees, like just <laughs> hunched over. And at that point, it's not a career. That's a that's a hobby. That's like <laughs> there's a difference. You do things for jobs. You do work. Yeah, can't think of many where, for the past what the better half of two decades, that man has gotten onto his haunches. And just kind of scared a generation of children. Yes. He's a hero, but... I mean, he, he is. Unironically, he is. I think that I get the the argument with motion capture that it's just a sophisticated form of makeup. And I think you sort of have to present it that way to get, like, people to understand that it's not just special effects. This is real acting, but... I think someone has, when someone invents a new form of makeup, someone has to be the Lon Chaney of that form yeah. and really show you what's possible. And that that will undoubtedly be Circus's legacy. Oh, well, that, it's like Doug Jones with the prosthetics for mm. Del Toro's films. Yeah. Um, but that's it's sort of a good place to be because for, for all the recognition Circus gets, it's also worked in his favour. He's now the iconic face of, you know, Gollum, Lord of the Rings and... Planet of the Apes, but at the same time, he's actually quite a good actor when he's not covered in green screens and prosthetics. Completely, yeah, and I think this is an interesting part that I mean, my I remember Sight and Sound saying that he's playing the Igor to Tesla's Frankenstein, which is a good one, but Circus himself had a, a quite a good take on it, and I think this is why he's now going to writing and directing, because he's good at looking at structure. Uh, he said he saw his character as like the the dark mirror of Michael Caine's character. Mm. And now they've both played Alfred. That is actually <laughs> an even better parallel, isn't it? Oh, that's, yeah, that's quite nice, though. I think especially for, who is it? Um, he play, Michael Caine plays the John Cutter, doesn't he? The uh, yeah. stagehand. He's basically, my notes say he's basically the Jonathan Creek to Christian Bale's Alan Klaus, Adam Klaus. I didn't think I'd ever get to call a podcast where someone makes a Jonathan Creek reference, but here we are. That's what you yeah, get on pop it's... screen. <laughs> no, that's a good comparison, though. It is essentially the dark mirror effect, and it's it's hard to tell who's in the right, though, isn't it? Because mm. it's essentially you're either a lackey to Tesla or you're a lucky to two angry magicians, and it's which one's going to make more progress there? Yes, let's talk about those angry magicians because they are that there are some things I love about them and some things that slightly hold me back. But they are Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman as Borden and Angier, respectively. Yeah. Uh, this was the first time I'd seen Hugh Jackman in something where I thought he was really, really good. I think. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. I think this is the first Hugh Jackman film where I thought, 
that's actually really good. And I think it's because as soon as you said Hugh Jackman's name there, I tried thinking of something he was in that wasn't X-Men or The Greatest Showman. <laughs> and the only thing that came to mind was The Prestige. Um, what else does he do other than... Musicals oh, Les Mis. and X-Men. Oh. Les Mis, yeah, yeah. And he's really good in Les Mis, actually. He I don't is, have yeah. any complaints about his performance there. Uh, Prisoners, of course, the Denis Villeneuve oh, yes. film. He was very good in... I was going to say Real Steel there, but I've not the heart to make that joke. Bad Education <laughs> was very good, though. Oh, I didn't um, see that one. Uh, it's good, yeah. His his filmography, I'm just looking at it's so strange. It's mm. essentially a, a good chunk of X-Men yeah. musicals. And then he has like Happy Feet and Flushed Away. <laughs> and... I'd forgotten about Flushed Away. Yeah, of course he's in that. <laughs> and that very, very quickly forgotten reminiscence from last year. Oh is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That already died its death. Oh, Can he did we... Australia. Australia's the big one, isn't oh. it? Baz Luhrmann's Australia, yes. Fantastic. Wow. Um, yeah. Quickly forgotten, uh, so let's forget it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always for the best. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it's a very strange career, and I think in some ways you can look at it and say he's managed it as well as anyone. You know, he, he feels like a proper movie star in an age that does not yeah. have many proper movie stars. I think there's two of them in this film. There's him and Scarlett Johansson, who are two mm. of the only people right now who feel like movie stars to me. Yeah, they feel a bit ahead above the rest more because they can continually make terrible films like Jackman's <laughs> past few years and still be at the very peak which is yeah. quite a good place to be, to be fair. It's, it's the stardom power, isn't it? It's, yeah. Completely, yeah. But I think some of it comes with a kind of caveat. Maybe not so much with Johansson, who has, you know, to her credit, done some absolutely mad shit like Under the Skin or her. Um, but being a movie star in this age comes with a caveat that you will stick to the kind of big franchise, high concept stuff that... Yeah. is popular and you will not go and take any chances on weirdo indie films and Jackman has mostly not done that at all I think that's where Johansson's kind of gotten it right because while she's in franchise stuff like you know Marvel she was in Home Alone 3 which is a great franchise <laughs> she's she's also done you know really nice films like Chef and Isle of Dogs and yeah. Lost in Translation and it's it's that balance that I always like because to me, it's, I, I always use John Favreau as the example of he's directing Iron Man and Iron Man 2. That's his cash, which he's mm. then using to do great projects like Chef, like Jungle Book. Yeah. You know, it, it's the balance that I always find a necessity to be. And everyone always yeah. says when they step off the indie circuit and onto that blockbuster treadmill, everyone always says, I will do smaller personal projects in between the big films. Yeah. And for a while, I think people thought Nolan was going to follow. So this seemed to be it. This seemed to be like, oh, he's, he's done Batman Begins and now he's making this little Victorian film that he's been attached to for ages. Uh, and he had at that point, um, Christopher Priest, the author, had been approached after the book's publication by Sam Mendes and Julian Javold with the thought of making a film of it. But he'd seen following and memento which were nolan's only two films when he signed on to this and said no it's got to be this guy so 
in some ways it's a throwback to his indie days. And I remember yeah. when in, when Inception was announced and no one knew anything about Inception. Everyone was like, ah, this is his prestige before he goes back and finishes the Batman trilogy. And no, it turned out that Nolan actually makes different blockbusters in between the blockbusters. <laughs> it just so happens that his passion projects are also massive popcorn movies. Yes. Massive blockbusters. I remember the first time I watched Inception was on a pirate DVD at the after-school film club when I was about 11. <laughs> and we watched the first 30 minutes of it and it just went to black and that was it. So I've seen the first 30 minutes of Inception and then about eight years later, I watched the remainder of it. Oh, that's actually how the film plays out. That's part of yeah, the is, yeah. with time. There's that eight-year gap. Uh... I, I was really dedicated to watching it in its true form. <laughs> By which I mean, I forgot about it almost immediately. <laughs> But I think, because, I, I, you know, uh, aside from the Dark Knight trilogy, which goes from great to brilliant to Tom Hardy, and then you've got Tenet and all sorts of different bits and bits and bobs, it's the prestige does feel like the closest to that independent nature. Yes. It feels more mental and insomnia than it does Tenet and Dunkirk. And I think it does get the balance right. I think it kind of just falls between the two of... This is quite a big budget. It's got a lot of big names. Yeah. But at the same time, it's got some nice little undercurrents that you wouldn't get in his bigger projects. I think if I wanted to sell someone on the idea that Christopher Nolan is not just somebody who does big spectacle and not just somebody who, you know, does shocking twists, that he is someone who can marshal themes and ideas this would probably be the film I would show them, more so than Memento, yeah. I think. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think this one's... It, it relies more on the sort of quality of the ensemble, where it's... I mean, Memento's a very interesting take on the five-minute flashes, but it yeah. loses that once you've watched it once. It's a brilliant film, but it's a, you know, it's a one-trick pony, essentially. Yeah, With the I prestige, it's, yeah. the, the prestige has something more to it because it's got more variety, it's got more little bits and pieces that you'll pick up through further uses, whereas yeah. with Memento, it's just, that's a lot, that's it. Which is great, but it's nice to know that when I go back to the Prestige, I might notice something I didn't before. And uh, Did you? Because I certainly did re-watch it. Yeah, the, yeah. I, th I think it was, because the first time I watched the Prestige was probably when I was in uni, so mm. I was probably drunk watching it. <laughs> so a lot of the stuff that I remembered this time round I probably noticed the first time, but just didn't remember. Yeah. Um, what really sticks out is, I, I don't know, I, I've never had much of a fondness for like stage productions and performance, but this one really, it really cemented something different about it. It really felt quite nice to watch and exhibit like the little magic tricks. I think it's the, is it the two doors where he yeah. opens it and then he's, that, that really impressed me. And I know it's all camera work and just cutting room floor stuff, but it is impressive to see it because it's, I can't do maths in my head. So to think of doing that with a camera just perplexes me. Yeah. So it's like, it's seeing something so complex work as opposed to seeing the actual magic, which I don't think is real. Yeah, I, I don't know if the magic is real. It should be pointed out that Ricky Jay, uh, a real stage magician who also had a very fruitful acting career, has a bit part in this, and I'm sure he'll have advised, but... Like, I don't know if those tricks with the birdcage and all of that stuff actually work. But 
yeah. I believe in them. I feel like there's a there's mm -hmm. a line in the prestige between the magic tricks at the start, which are the kind of things where you can believe someone could do that on stage, and the magic tricks at the end where it becomes more fantastical. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know where to draw the line really, because I think I went through a big magic phase, not as in performing, but just watching it on CITV, because Stephen Mulhern used to right. do a magic show. And it was just really simple stuff, like sleight of hand. Mm. And I've always really liked stuff like that, and I can't do it because my wrists are just done in. That's it for them. I've got a guitar over there that I can't play. Right. But it's, um, I've always wanted to do like card tricks and stuff. Not like, oh, here's your card, but like just actually flicking them around yeah and i have no dexterity at all no. i'm so clumsy <laughs> but it's i always thought magicians were that and that's it not like big illusions like this and it was rather nice to see it in a sort of grand perspective in a in a big scale people would go and actually pay money to see this so yeah uh, because that's one of the interesting undercurrents of it that people maybe don't talk about enough, but it is very firmly rooted in that Victor late Victorian era where stage magicians were basically like prototype rock stars. They were the big entertainers of their day, and there is there are like cameos from some of the big names in there. Chung Lim Soo, the guy who pretends to be elderly in every public appearance so you can get away with these outrageously agile slights of hand without anyone suspecting he's a real person and it's that's the thing i think it's that's where i'm not too amazed by jackman and bale mm. is that a lot of magicians especially when you get the perspective of the smaller scale stuff like you've just mentioned there a lot of magicians were basing it on their personality their appearance and then the actual illusion there was who they were portraying, where Bale and Hugh Jackman is playing Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. Yeah, and I, I think Nolan tries to make that into a theme and he tries to sort of have Borden, the Bale character, being the sort of technically gifted one who has no showmanship and yeah. Jackman as Angier being the one who's maybe not as gifted but can sell a trick and that's stated and that becomes part of the text but I think that the ability to get that theme across is hampered by the fact that Nolan is not yet on board with big flamboyant performances if yeah. Jackman was giving the kind of performance that someone like Tom Hardy or Robert Pattinson gives in Nolan's later films, you would get that absolutely. But there's still an element to them where they are both very professional guys in suits. Yeah, it just so happens that the suits are like just a bit older. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the real change here. <laughs> it was before pinstripes. <laughs> I really want to see Nolan do a pinstripe movie. It's the nice twenties set. Could he could he make a biopic of a suit manufacturer? Like, because he seems to be on this treadmill now of doing a, world, a true story set in World War II, but then a science fiction film. So after Oppenheimer, there's going to be another science fiction film, and then I don't know the Oswald Botang story or something. That's how it's going to go. He saw Kingsman and he was furious, so angry. <laughs> Because he wanted to just do the suit shop, and that was it. He yes. didn't care for the special agents. He just wanted a nice biopic where Michael Caine runs a suit shop. He's not allowed to sit down because that was a joke at one point, wasn't it? That people weren't allowed to sit down on his films. Yes, I remember when that came out, and it was just doing the rounds, and it was essentially two weeks of 
focused, we're going to yell at Christopher Nolan about not letting people sit down. And then after that, nothing. It just disappeared. That was it. That's the Twitter news cycle, though, isn't it? You have a set people to be angry about something and then you forget it ever happened. I think that the greatest part of Twitter and the whole Christopher Nolan extension of it is Michael Caine, whose Twitter feed is... There isn't a word to describe that. It's... I don't know what's going on there. It's so it's good. A ray of positivity in an absolute hell sight. Oh, it's it's beautiful. It's it's the fact that he can tweet the word hello and get hundreds <laughs> of thousands of likes. <laughs> yeah, this is. Uh, it's remarkable to think for this is both. Bale and Kane's second film with Nolan. It seems incredible that there was ever a time when they were like newcomers to Nolan's yeah. films, but here we are. It's it's rather telling that they were essentially a stalwart casting choices for a long while. And it's you know, it, it's it's easy to see why, because they do I think it's the fact that they understand the formula yeah. of what Nolan's trying to do, and they slot into that so well. You know, you've got the leading man and then you've got the sort of father figure, essentially. And it, it works really nicely because those two have great chemistry yeah. in whatever they're in, essentially. Yeah, there is. I mean, we've we've compared uh, Circus's character to Kane's character and also to Igor. And, you know, uh, there, there are loads of resonances you can draw there. But the relationship between Bale and Kane feels like it's just followed on very naturally from Bruce Wayne and Alfred, it feels like an yeah. extension of that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's it's nice to see that, though. It's nice to see that mm. develop, because it's, you know, it's, it's one thing to have chemistry with someone. It's another thing entirely to have it differ from movie to movie. Yeah, I And it does feel agree. a bit different. Yeah. It's nice, it's, yeah. It's something that I like, and I don't know why people are sort of sniffy about, oh, Wes Anderson's using the same people again. I, I think that's cute. I don't know why yeah. people have a problem with it. It's not new either. It's no. you know, Quentin Tarantino does it. All the big shot directors do it because they've they've worked with these people. They know that they work well with their writing. So yeah, it's, it, it's a no-brainer to just continually use the same people. Oh God, James Wales working with Boris Karloff again. Find a new actor. <laughs> Come on, lads. Let's, let's get another one in. Yeah, get yeah. another Frankenstein. <laughs> sure, Michael Caine's available. <laughs> Right. On that joke, I'm going to stop it and start a new one. Yeah, yeah. We've got three minutes left, so yeah. I'll uh, email you another link in a minute. Lovely. No worries. Yeah, on, on the topic of the actors, like I say, I really love Hugh Jackman in this, and the the bit where they find a double for Angie Air was... I, I, the first time I watched this, I genuinely sat there thinking, where have they got that guy who looks exactly like Hugh Jackman? And then I found out it was him. I didn't think he was capable of anything <laughs> like that. It was great. Yeah, he's very much a one-role man. You don't expect him to pull the yeah. double whammy, do you? No. I didn't expect it's... him to play anything other than Wolverine <laughs> at this point in his career. But yeah, he's, he's great in it. Well, don't worry, because for the next 10 years after the prestige, <laughs> he would continue to do so. It's... Well, I, I would like to see him extend this English drunk part of his uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. repertoire a bit further. I would like <laughs> him in a, in a gritty reboot of With Nail and I. <laughs> Who would go alongside him? Is it Michael Caine? Maybe, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, Jackman and Bale again. 
Jackman Bale and Bale. Yeah, Van Christ, yeah. Marwood. Yeah. <laughs> that would be quite the film, actually. <laughs> hey. Bale in this, I must say, is not one of my favourite performances he's given. Yeah. Do you think that's because he's exceeded every expectation elsewhere? I think it's stuff be. like, uh, oh, what you call it, The Machinist, um, yeah. Batman Begins. It's They're so good that yeah. seeing him something like just the it, it, this bang average is like lots of it disappointment because we know what he can do. It's maybe that. I also think the accent isn't great. It sounds a bit like an American actor doing a British accent. It's a bit blimey, yeah. Gavner. You know, <laughs> that's Victorian England, though. That's yeah, it. yeah. I that's... mean, <laughs> probably got to start as a chimney sweep, and that's what he's oh. going for. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, from chimney sweep to coal miner straight to magician that's that's the trajectory isn't it <laughs> that, that that was all victorian era that, i've read all of the twists i know what happens i wonder if there are any, like angry granddads in the edwardian age going uh, uh kids these days they don't know what it's like to graft as a stage <laughs> magician anymore <laughs> yeah my, my granddad comes from a long line of stage magicians he was very disappointed when i became a journalist <laughs> Very upset and news with the family. A whole family of magicians, don't you know? You ask someone to pick a card, any card these days, they don't understand what you're talking about. I think it's... so. I don't know why, but in secondary school and stuff, the the whole thing was like, if people had a pack of cards, they'd do the pick a card thing. But then nobody would know where to go with it. So they picked the card. And I remember I did it once. I was like, oh, pick a card. And they picked the card. I was like, right, put it back. And that was it. That was the end of the trick. So they took the card. <laughs> they, they acknowledged the card. And I went, right, put it back in the deck. And I just put the deck of cards away. That was because I was so frightened at the idea that I would actually have to continue the trick. It's like my favorite knock-knock joke is the one where you say, okay, you need to say knock-knock. And then when they say knock-knock, you just say who's there and see how they react. It's easy to see a reaction than it is to actually <laughs> perform with talent. <laughs> yeah. I don't like magic. <laughs> I think we've basically got to the roots of like internet trolling as a subculture there, isn't it? It's easy to yeah. get a reaction than to do anything with real talent. It always reminds me of that Limmy Show sketch where he says, oh, he's got a reaction out of you there. He's got exactly what he wanted. <laughs> and that's essentially it. It's yeah. People do things for a reaction rather than a reason. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way for it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... We we should get on to boy. Boy is the reason for the season. Yeah. Um, and I hate. He's that musician fella, isn't he? He's yeah. He he uh, did some. He did some novelty songs about gnomes in the sixties, and then faded. <laughs> oh, don't from you, don't I mention think. that. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say his first two albums I really don't like. Oh yeah. I don't, no his self-titled one's horrendous. That. Yeah, and space oddity. If it weren't for the, you know, space oddity, would not be remembered. Ah, uh, memory of a free festival. All right, yeah, free okay, festival's yeah, festival's good. Yeah, but I, you've actually caught me at a good time though, because I've been on a bit of a Bowie binge recently. Where yeah, I've been listening to all of his albums again. I actually bought myself a copy of Rise and Fall on vinyl, yeah. and then a, you mentioned at the start's fiftieth year anniversary. Could have just waited for a reprint of it and gotten a bit cheaper, but yeah, we all make mistakes, eh? <laughs> Um, no, so this this sort of comes 
what was his last album? Heathen before he did the Prestige. He no, he done he did Heathen and then he did Reality the year after. Oh, and that, yes. That got a bit of momentum going. I remember when Heathen came out, which I think is fucking great. I love Heathen. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of people saying, "Oh, Bowie's back. He's absolutely back on track now." And then he just disappeared for the longest time, which hmm. makes him sort of good casting for Nikola Tesla, even though Nolan couldn't have possibly known that. <laughs> it's it's a rather handy thing to have where you've yeah. cast the man as Nikola Tesla and he's just dropped off the face of the earth for a good, <laughs> what, six years? Yes. It's... <laughs> well, it's a full decade, really, because uh, Heathen was 2003. He did, uh, grant you, he did two of them until he had his heart attack in 2006 and that yeah. made him reconsider live performance. But then the next day, 2013. Yes, which is probably my favourite Bowie album from the 21st century right um yeah i love that album i think really, it's very really, good yeah i remember listening to that and then i listened to black star afterwards and i thought the next day is a stronger album than black star for what it symbolizes it's i it's it's a bit of a you know i i don't think you can say a, a bowie album is under listened to or not as in in the now yeah but i think the next day sort of goes a bit under the radar because it's overshadowed by black star yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I do think I slightly prefer Black Star, but there is some amazing stuff on the next day. I love the title yeah. track. I love How Does the Grass Grow. I even think some of the outtakes from that period, like, uh, what's that one? Uh, I'll Take You There. I'll Take You There is a wonderful song. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, So Lonely You Could Die in Heat at the end of that album. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sort of minor tradition on Bowie albums that after a certain point, there's always one that's a tribute to Scott Walker, and he yeah. is one of the greatest of the Scott oh, Walker yes. songs he'd done. Scott Walker, man, what what a guy! What a we, genius! Yeah, amazing. I listened to the Drift recently. Unbelievable. Oh boy! Yeah, wow. absolutely stunning. There's something about listening to that and then David Bowie afterwards while I'm at work. Nobody knows I listen to albums at work. Well, they do now because I've just admitted to it. <laughs> but <laughs> oh shit! But it's listening to that really puts you in a different place. It's fantastic. I, I gave um, Station to Station a listen recently again. Yeah, and it's unbelievable how great that album is. It's stunning. My favorite David Bowie album mm. hops all over the shop, but there's like three that get the title most often it's usually either lodger diamond dogs or station to station and i think station mm. station to station was my first favorite boy album when i started yeah. to get into boy station to station was the one that immediately grabbed me and made me think no this is a great great album yeah i think yeah station to station for me was that sort of the the peak and then i started going back through his work and I, I think I'd say, because I'm just a basic man, Ziggy Stardust is probably the favourite, because I think it's my love for five years and yeah. Starman. It, that, that may as well just be a greatest hits album, because that's just non-stop classics. But um, I gave Hunky Dory another listen. That's stunning. Yeah. And, and Law as well. Just it's, it's incredible. I'm still not as keen on Heroes, um, which has improved when I listened to it last. 
but I'm still Rose not really clicked with me recently. I, yeah. I too would tend to think that it was the least interesting of the Berlin albums, but I I listened to it again. I just think that ambient suite on the second side of like mm. Sense of Doubt, Moss Garden, and New Cone is absolutely stunning. Yeah. Well, it's um I listened to Toy that new archive release. Oh yeah. I still haven't really listened good. to all of that, right? If it weren't for the horrifying album cover, which is <laughs> David Bowie's face on a baby, which is, to, to be honest, like I haven't had nightmares in years, but after I listened <laughs> to that and saw that, I've been having like sleep paralysis and I'll wake up and see that on my wall. It's It's... I don't know if it's better or worse that his eyes aren't staring directly at you or if it's staring off like above you as if it's looking at something creeping behind you. <laughs> at least the music on the album's good. You know, you've got some really good tracks on there like Baby Loves That Way and Let Me Sleep Beside You. There's really good archive stuff on there. And it's a shame as well because I remember reading into it and it was essentially that was going to be his next big album. Yeah. But because the record company couldn't, find a scheduled release for it they just shelved it which is mad that's insane you would think that when you're david boy you get to tell the record company what they do yeah and it's remarkable how many big artists like Bowie. i always think of johnny cash where it's like their record production didn't stop they were just getting shafted by the company that didn't want to promote them it's... Yeah, that was one of those things in have you seen the sparks brothers the edgar wright I have. Film? Yeah, yeah yeah there's that whole period in like the late 80s, early 90s, where they are still recording constantly, but they don't have a record contract. So they just go yeah. in and work every day on new music and never get it released. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how people respond to not having record deals or being stuck in bad contracts. Because I know Johnny Cash did um, Chicken in Black, which is a remarkably good, bad song. It, <laughs> it, the, the whole song is about Johnny Cash's brain being transplanted into a chicken. <laughs> and, and the chicken then becomes the chicken in black and starts doing tours of Europe. And Johnny Cash wants his brain back, so becomes a bank robber and dresses as a superhero in spandex. That fascinating incredible. song. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's an intentional attack on his own career because he was sick of it. Where Bowie didn't really... It's not that he didn't have that problem, but he was always inventing new music. Yeah. But to go along with a reinvention of an image. Because he essentially went from, you know, Ziggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke and then whatever was after that. The Berlin stuff, yeah, which yeah. doesn't have a persona attached, but it's obviously a very identifiable yeah. chunk of his career. And the thing that was a blessing in disguise for him was that he did have a shit contract for most of the 70s that forced him to work and tour continually for less than he was worth and tied him yeah. down for about 10 albums but the the thing is i mean for most people that would wipe them out but for bowie it was like the perfect schedule because as soon as he got bored of one album good news it's time to put out it's another a... <laughs> one <laughs> it's it's not a bad way to work work so hard that you can never get bored of it yeah 
To but be fair, he, he leaked to all sorts um, of incredible things, like when he was touring yeah. Diamond Dogs, he was already starting to think about young Americans. And if you listen to the bootlegs of those shows, he like starts off doing glam rock and ends up doing soul. <laughs> he like changes genre over the course <laughs> of the tour. I, w- I will say, young Americans really grew on me. I think it's it's probably because of fame and the title track. Fame is stunning. I love Amazing. fame. There's some it, good um, stuff on Young Americans that gets overlooked. I like Win. I love Fascination. Fascination's yeah. great. Somebody up there likes me. Yes. Magnificent. Magnificent. I think I went back to Young Americans a bit after I learned that it was Gail Ann Dorsey's favourite David Bowie album. You think, oh, right, you've got to sit up and listen then, haven't oh, yes. you? Yeah. What was it um, on Fame? John Lennon is on that track, isn't he? Just yeah. to say Fame. <laughs> yeah, he, he like has a co-writing credit for writing a bit of the verse and yelling Fame, which is great. <laughs> It's amazing that more people don't sample John Lennon under their songs so they can say, oh, John Lennon, we've collaborated. Yes. Yeah. It'd be much easier. There's another co-writing credit on Young Americans, which is incredible. But are you aware of the co-writer of Fascination? No. Don't look this up because there's a okay. bit of a story on it. Uh, one of his backing singers came in with a song called Funky Music is a Part of Me. And Boy was like, well, as a white guy who's doing his first soul album, that might sound a bit presumptuous, but it's a good song. I'll reword it a bit. It became Fascination. And yeah. that backing singer was Luther Vandross. And that was his first ever songwriting credit. That's amazing. Yeah. That, what? It's a decent song to start your career with. Yeah. Bloody hell. It's amazing. It's, you know, it's, I mean, I think it's, it helps that we've had a chance to reflect on where these musicians have gone and how much work they've done. And mm. it always strikes me that Iggy Pop's Lust for Life is essentially David Bowie's B-side. And it's yeah. always struck me as just this marvellous collaboration that at the time was probably quite, oh, yeah, cool. The guy from the Stooges and the, the strange Spider-Man are making an album together. Yeah, but not really. And then, if you look at it now, it's oh my god, David Bowie's done an album and a bit with Iggy Pop. Yeah, gigantic. Yeah, it's huge. But I think the fact that it wasn't. Yeah, my favorite thing about Bowie and Iggy Pop's collaboration is that um, they'd known each other before, but they started to collaborate when Bowie moved to Berlin uh, to live with Iggy Pop in an effort to clean up from drug addiction which is sort of like moving to the Sahara Desert to escape sand really isn't it (laughs) well isn't it something like it was bananas bell peppers and cocaine was essentially his diet for a while (laughs) he sounds like a uni student (laughs) god did you ever get to the stage of university studying (laughs) where you also thought that witches were trying to steal your piss (laughs) <laughs> no, but I, I, I was convinced that the flat below us were going to steal our toaster. I don't know why, because they were the nicest people you could have ever wanted to live below you. But so we had a toaster that could actually. So I, I lived in three different flats at uni. We only had one where the toaster actually toasted the full slice of bread. And that was the first year. And word got out, you know. People yeah. found out about our toaster because everyone was buying the cheap Wilco one that only does the little loaves. And we had a proper, you could fit a good tiger bread loaf 
in the torso, not all of it, but a slice. Yeah. Um, and and downstairs we're like, oh, can we can we use your torso? And I remember I was a bit drunk because I just got back from an IO and I went, no, no, you can't. It's like, <laughs> why not? It's like because we, we've got no toast. And then I went to bed. But I remember uni was horrible. I, I remember the first day I moved in and my flat, my window fell off. <laughs> and when you live next to the course, you don't want that to happen. No. Um, my wardrobe door fell off. Um, burnt my face in the shower. <laughs> melted it. Had to go to E and E. That, to be fair, that was that was an accident on my part because the shower was very hot. But also, when I noticed my face is a bit red, I was like, ah, a bit of face cream, yes. Turns out I was also allergic to the chemicals in the face cream, oh, which God. then added to the burns. Um, the, I remember what the doctor said. He, he gave me some, like, uh, cream for my face. And he said, what have you done? It's like, <laughs> I really don't know. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'd love to bring the podcast to a close after that, but I can't. <laughs> To be fair, actually, I, I will loop it back to David Bowie because that's where I bought my first David Bowie album. Well, I say bought, I got it for Christmas. I got the uh, Legacy on vinyl. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was like the nice collaboration. And essentially what that did was frustrate me greatly that I didn't just buy his other albums because it's like the emissions off of that record are fascinating. There's no yeah. Moon Age Daydream. There's not really any Young Americans stuff. There's certainly no The Next Day. And there's, you know, you've got Ashes to Ashes and that's it. There's nothing from the 90s apart from Let's Dance. Like, not even Modern Love. It's like, it, it, it's, it's a shambles of a set list. But obviously, they're all, you know, five-star classics. Yeah, Apart yeah. Apart from Dancing in the Street with Mick Jagger. Oh, boy. Yeah. Which somehow gets on there. I think my gateway was the Sound and Vision box set, which yes, I think yeah. they've reissued and they brought it up to date, but the version I had cut off at like the mid-90s. Um, but that was more interesting because that has no pretensions to being a greatest hits collection and it does leave off a lot of very big songs like Let's Dance and Change. Yeah. Is Change on there? No, There's definitely some of those hunky-dory tracks that aren't on there, but it also has loads of like b-sides and live cuts and nice little oddities um so it's a really fantastic resource to anyone who anyone who wants to get into david bowie but doesn't know where to start just listen to sound and vision make a note of where your favorite tracks come from and move from there yeah absolutely i was going to say do you think there's one album that's like that's the quintessential bowie and you can listen to it I don't think you could do it with an album because there's his back catalogue is so varied but yeah I do think if you don't like Diamond Dogs, then you're probably not going to get on with Bowie in general because that's got quite a lot of different styles on it. And you can say to someone, you know, if you like the title track, go for his glam stuff. If you like Candidate and Sweet Thing, go for his, like, Berlin stuff. If you like the soul stuff, obviously, Young Americans. If you like Rebel Rebel, go to Aladdin Sane and stay there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's so. Someone said to me that Aladdin saying was only good because it's the iconic image, and then I re-listened to it. And it's like you can't say that when you've got Time and the Prettiest Star as well as Gene Genie on there. Oh yeah, there's no there's no Bowie album that is, from the seventies that is dispensable. I would say, but yeah. Aladdin saying is slightly odd because I, I do see where that guy is coming from. It is more iconic than it is great. Like yeah. Y- 
when you see that image, you think David Bowie, and you would think that image would be on the front of something like Hunky Dory or Ziggy Stardust or yeah. some other absolutely classic album with loads of hits. But it's on Aladdin Sane, which is kind of a fun but patchy collection of Ziggy offcuts, I guess. Yeah, it feels like he's got a bit more left in the tank for all right let's just crack another album out let's just get it done and it's yeah. sort of ripping it, it's a surprisingly good rip on Ziggy Stardust things yeah but it's nice to see though that when he stopped being that productive he'd make stuff like Earthling yeah which is interesting I thought you know because you've got Dead Man Walking but then you've got seven years in Tibet so mm. the only sort of through line is he liked naming songs after films at that point he did yeah <laughs> to be fair he he was smart enough to capitalize on the whole britannia wave of the union jack and stuck himself on the album with that court didn't he it's one of the few union jack rock images of the 90s that isn't totally embarrassing um yeah. again you think that that is an al that is an album cover that more people like than they like the album yeah uh, without a doubt and it's, it's probably because, again, it's quite... It wasn't that like his sort of semi-drum and bass face. Yeah, yeah. You can hear it creeping in a bit on Outside, which I think is yeah. a great record. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know if Earthling is more drum and bass than Outside or whether he just made the mad decision to like market and say, yes, this is David Bowie's drum and bass album. It's like, oh, fuck the Union Jack. Why don't you just paint a target on the back of your coat? Because that's what you're going to get. Uh, it was a very innovative bloke. He was. And that's why, you went, that's exactly why. That's we're why we've got a whole month, month of it, is it? A whole Fantastic. month of films from all over David Bowie's career. And if you enjoyed that, our next episode will be a Patreon exclusive in which, tell the people what we're doing, Ewan. Do I have to say it out loud? I was hoping I could go. I don't even, I forgot the name of the film. I've got so <laughs> many excuses. We're going to do uh, David Bowie's st- verified biopic. Yes. Uh, Star- Stardust. Stardust, yes. Stardust. I imagine they wanted to call it Starman, but for reasons we'll get into on that podcast, they weren't allowed. Yes. <laughs> for many reasons. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll be doing that. We've also got episodes on uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Labyrinth, and just to remind you that we occasionally go hard left field, Baal coming up. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. The classic Baal. <laughs> I was really, I was, I was sat here just waiting for Zoolander there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sort of glad you didn't say Zoolander. Yeah, we're going to cold clock you with a bit of Baal instead. Um, (laughs) You know, you could have done Arthur and the Invisibles. We we could have. We. It's possible that something could hurt more than doing Stardust, and that might be it. Oh, I don't know. Unless it's Yellow Beard. But yes, all that is to come. Uh, if you want that Patreon exclusive episode, it is at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show. But until next time, I've been Graham. I've been Ewan. And we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.